You're listening to KRUI 89.7 Iowa City. Welcome to Bijou Banter, produced by the Bijou Film Board, a student-run organization at the University of Iowa dedicated to the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema. Since 2013, Bijou has assisted with the programming and operation of Film Scene, a nonprofit cinema in downtown Iowa City. As a disclaimer, all of the opinions expressed during Bijou Banter are those of the hosts and our guests, and not those of KRUI or the University of Iowa. It's Thursday, October 6th, 2016, and in this week's show, we'll be discussing three films that are about to open at Film Scene. Our lineup includes The Greasy Strangler, which plays at Film Scene Saturday, October 8th at 11 p.m. as part of Bijou After Hours. Next, we'll be discussing Before the Flood, which plays at Film Scene Tuesday, October 11th at 6 p.m. as part of Bijou Film Forum. Finally, we'll be discussing The Birth of a Nation, which opens at Film Scene tomorrow and will continue to play throughout the weekend and all next week. Before we begin to banter, I should introduce my co-hosts. We have Spencer Williams, a cinema major at the University of Iowa. Welcome, Spencer. Hi. And we have Changmin Yu, a film studies grad student at Iowa. Welcome, Changmin. Glad to be here. And I'm Leah Vanderheide, also a film studies grad student. So let's start with our first film, The Greasy Strangler. Spencer, you program this film, so what do you have to say for yourself? <laughs> <laughs> In the spirit of last week's banter, I will start my rundown with a question posed to no one in particular. Um, Have you ever wanted to flush a movie down the toilet? Have you ever wanted to shield and protect everyone you know from viewing a filmic text? If so, I invite you to come and cry with me as I attempt to give a brief synopsis of The Greasy Strangler. This movie is about a father and a son and the woman that comes between them. I wish it were that cozy. Instead, I was subjected to loads of grease, which was to be expected, but also prosthetic dicks, the most annoying dialogue ever to be spoken on the big screen, and, well, a lot more than that, frankly, and I don't want to think about. Um, I can stomach a lot. I barely flinched at Cannibal Holocaust. I laughed wholeheartedly during Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but I truly believe the greasy strangler to be the work of the devil himself. Um, My fellow banters, I want to apologize to you guys on air for subjecting you to this movie. Um, And I guess my first question is, will you ever forgive me? You're already forgiven, but it's not forgotten. (laughs) (laughs) I think that was a traumatic experience (laughs) I have um, never experienced before. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like we should say that um, this is the first time that you have both independently of each other texted me to just, like, forewarn me and apologize <laughs> about the material I was about to subject myself to. So that's the kind of level we were working with with the uh, Greasy Strangler. Yeah. Especially because, like, I was sort of eating my dinner when I was watching the film. <laughs> so it's like, oh, my God, seriously? That's the best of humanity, really? <laughs> Well, usually my setup involves, like, a bowl of, like, goldfish crackers and, like, a Coke or, like, some other beverage. And, like, I was, like, ready to chow down when the movie started. And then maybe the first five minutes I had to just, like, put... I had to, like, somehow funnel my, like, goldfish back into the giant box that I had. Because I'm like, there's no way I'm doing this today. But um, I guess let's talk about... (laughs) The first thing that struck me was the soundtrack. Um, And I'm just curious at what point you guys... Um, muted the screen. I think, I mean, the soundtrack was pretty annoying, but it was not disgusting. So, I mean, that was sort of like, you know, um, something for you to relax. Like, because, like, it is just annoying. It's not disgusting. It's not, you know, something like you would like, 
you, you, it would cause you to throw up. I don't know. I muted the soundtrack. Um, I started muting it during the first appearance of the greased up strangler. Um, and because I was just worried there'd be like lots of gross noises as he moved around um, covered in grease. Then um, <laughs> definitely when the interchange between or the exchange between the hot dog vendor and the the non-greased up strangler began, I <laughs> I muted. I felt like that wasn't going anywhere pleasant and, and can delightful. Can I also ask a question? Why is there so many eyeballs in this film? Like eyeballs everywhere. Eyeballs? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. <laughs> Didn't see any? Well, I'm going to let Spence answer. I mean, I saw the two pop out of that guy's head. Um, I don't know. I mean, I I mean, the same thing could be asked for maybe every aspect of this film, I think. It was just like, why, <laughs> why is that in there? Like, why? Um, but will you guys ever eat hot dogs or go to the car wash again? Um, the, the car wash, that didn't bother me that much. I mean, he was like literally getting clean. That's true. So like that seemed like, that was a, yeah, that was a positive. Um, the hot dogs, you know, it's interesting that like hot dogs and hot dog vendors already have kind of a role in gross out literature, (laughs) like, um, the Confederacy of Dunces. Have you mm-hmm. read this book? No. No. I One of the big... That was not my favorite book. And one of the <laughs> biggest impressions that left on me was just like the role of a kind of bombastic hot dog salesman and the kind of grossness of him and the hot dog cart started to like fuse together in my mind. So it felt really natural that um, a really gross scene took place because of a hot dog vendor. And that wasn't your favorite book? No, it was not my favorite book. But this was your favorite movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to be really clear about that. <laughs> I don't know. I, I God, I, 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 this is the first time I'm speechless. I just have <laughs> nothing to say about this film because it totally grosses me out. Like, I, I mean, I, God, see, I'm speechless. I'm surprised that you had such a strong reaction to it, Changmin. I feel like you're usually made of sterner stuff. I am, but like you, I mean, usually I'm not accustomed to people, you know, using their finger to um, get something out of people's nostrils, some kind of bodily fluids to eat. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing in the film. <laughs> and like, uh, sound pretty and then, judgy to me. <laughs> <laughs> You've never done that. That's weird. And there are also a lot of, you know, popped out eyeballs, and they are cooked in different manners. <laughs> to so me, yeah, to me, this movie just felt like an hour and a half long, like Tim and Eric sketch, where you just removed all of the funny bits and just put in like body gore in place of it. And I don't know, I feel like I was, I think I'm a little bit speechless too, but not in the sense that, because I feel like when I say, oh, I'm speechless, that might entice people to want to like seek it out and be like, ooh, I wonder like how it's going to scar me for life. But like, I really just want to stress that that, like, that's not what I mean when I say that I'm speechless. (laughs) I mean, there's like literally nothing really to talk about once it's over, except like, wow, that was gross. Well, I want to talk about, and I I think maybe you do too, um, this idea of this movie made me think like who this is not a 
a reflection of my reality in any way, shape, or form. Like, not my lived reality, really? not my fantasized reality. <laughs> not, but it's becoming part of life right now. But not even, like, not even my comedic understanding of reality or of my fantasies, right? So I just, it's curious to me when this kind of material gets made and celebrated and, um, like, who it's appealing to, like, what... Is this does this sort of reflect somebody's sensibilities? Not mine. Um, and I don't I like that I guess that was like one of my questions too. I'm just like, who would love this movie? There's gotta be people out there that because like when this was premiered at Sundance of all places, um, like it got really good reviews coming out of it. Um, it got good reviews coming out of South by Southwest too. And so I'm just wondering, like, am I not accessing something here? Is there like something, is this film operating on some kind of deeper level that I just cannot penetrate in any way? I mean, I do appreciate gross films. I mean, it is part of my dissertation, but still, I think, um, like to, in order for, for film to be gross and reflective at the same time, the director has to put in some work. I think for this film, it's not there. I think, I, I, for example, I don't know why uh, the father has a bigger dick and the, the son has a smaller dick. I, I, I don't get that in the film. And not even just like average, like, oh, there's like a little bit of a difference. Like, no, they're like polar opposite. Mm-hmm. Like, like 20 centimeters and one. Yeah. Yeah, the father's penis is alarming. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's just sort of overt psychoanalysis, right? I mean, I think that yeah. it's it's kind of putting on display all of our fears of our bodies, of our relationships with our family, of our fears of our sexuality and our sexual expressions with other people. Like, I actually think that the movie is saying something by kind of deconstructing and de-aestheticizing sexuality and then reconstructing it and re-aestheticizing it. It just, I I don't feel like I needed, I don't need a world that does any of those things. <laughs> no, no, no. So, <laughs> but maybe uh, that's reflecting a certain privilege that I experience or something. So, like that's what, it's an, it's an unnerving movie for me in that sense. Like I don't know what to say about it because I do imagine that, as you say, Spencer, like it, there must be somebody out there that this really resonates with not because this is like their life, but because there's something about the sensibility, the comic sensibility that really they like the overt display of these things. I mean, I get that. But like, for example, (laughs) one thing I didn't get in the film was like the potato joke. Yeah, that was... (laughs) Yeah, I don't... Mm, I I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, the the pronunciation of the word potato was like... (sighs) What was that? Just because, is this like feeding into a really mainstream stereotype of Indian accents and that they're just always funny in the mainstream? Like, I don't, I don't know what that I don't was understand either. the point of that. That no. whole section just felt wrong. <laughs> like, that was like the last thing I heard before I muted it. Too. <laughs> <laughs> but it just like went on forever, too. It took up so it much time. It goes on and on and on for like five minutes. I was like, <laughs> what? I was appalled. How can you, you just, guys? You just keep made that a face that like no one can hear. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what? Even like hootie tootie disco cutie, just like the repetition of these like certain phrases at a certain point. Like maybe it was supposed to drive me crazy, and like in that case, like congratulations, like whoever made this movie, you've succeeded. But other than that, I just like I don't know. Well, I still 
would recommend this film to my students if they ever want to challenge themselves. I think this would be a good movie to see. I would recommend this to like people that I've had beef with in the past. <laughs> As like a revenge tactic. I won't tell anyone I've ever seen this movie. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the Greasy Strangler plays at film scene Saturday, October eighth at eleven p.m. As part of Bijou After Hours. For more information on Bijou After Hours, check out bijou.uiowa.edu. After a quick break, we'll be back to discuss Before the Flood. Ranger Station. Yeah, hi. I'd like to report a bear sighting in the forest. Uh-huh. One second I'm having a smoke. Next thing I know, I'm face-to-face with Smokey Bear. Wow. And he told me it only takes one spark to start a wildfire. Did you know nine out of ten wildfires are caused by humans? I had no idea. That's why Smokey's famous and you're not. If you see someone in danger of starting a wildfire, step in and make a difference. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Learn more at SmokeyBear.com. Only you can prevent wildfires. Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films playing locally at Film Scene. Let's move on to our second film, Before the Flood. Chungmin, perhaps you can give us some background on this documentary before we begin our discussion. Sure. Before the Flood is an environmental documentary produced by, well, a lot of famous people, including Leonardo DiCaprio and Martin Scorsese. It traces DiCaprio's journey as United Nations Messenger of Peace, with a special focus on climate change since 2014. At the very beginning of the film, Leo honestly confesses that he's not a scientist, not someone who has the authority to determine the truth of global warming. But there's no need to worry. Leo is the global trotter who brings the audience to Canada, Iceland, China, India, Paris basically all around the world in order to witness firsthand the very impact of climate polarization. The film begins with Hieronymus Bosch's The Garden of Earthly Delights, a painting whose replica was hand about Leo's crib. The triptych format allegorizes the situation in which we find ourselves. There is no turning back, no more Garden of Eden. We, the humanity in general, are firmly bracketed in the center panel by the unordered adulterated paradise that was never there and a pending judgment day of meteorological apocalypse. I have to admit that most climate change documentaries make me cringe, not because I'm a climate change denier, but because the perspective adopted often doesn't take into consideration the 20th century imperial legacy of most Western countries. In other words, the initiative to reduce carbon dioxide emission always sounds like a trade weapon for um, the United States. It's like saying, ha-ha, America and Europe have been modernized by consuming a lot of fossil fuels, but guys in the East and in the South, we have to go green now, so get in line. This is exactly why I appreciate the balanced report that the film tries so hard to present to its audience. My fellow banterers, any first impressions? Yeah, um, I... I agree that this film was fairly well balanced in the way that it thought about climate change, in the way that it thought about an individual's responsibility to climate change, a society's responsibility to climate change, 
a business's responsibility to climate change, the government's responsibility to climate change, the West's responsibility to climate change, developing nations' responsibility to climate change. Like, it really did try to cover the bases to explain just how complex the problem is. Um, and Leonardo DiCaprio, it, I was happy that they did go to some length but not too much length to explain kind of that he has been a voice in this movement for a long time. And in fact, he admits that he became a voice in the movement before he even really understood um, what, you know, what was then called global warming. Um, But just because he was such a famous young person, (laughs) he was tapped to be the voice of this movement. And now that he's older, he has tried to educate himself and play a more pivotal role in what is a really important um, issue of our time. And in this documentary, he he does a lot of listening, which I think was really important. There was just a chance that he was going to kind of walk around the world um, actor-splaining <laughs> all, of, all of the perils of the world. <laughs> um, and instead, he sits, he sits across from um, the, the best scientists, the most noted, um, you know, figures of our time, including Obama and the Pope, and he just listens a lot. So that seemed really important to the success of this documentary and as opposed to like what could have been a really stomach-churning experience of watching such an elite person who is not actually a scientist trying to explain this to us. Yeah, yeah, I liked that a lot about this film too, is sort of Leonardo just listening and in effect we're sort of learning along with him. Um, And I think it was also helpful, too, because a lot of the times when they're sort of explaining these things, he kind of, there's, there are moments where he tries to, like, reiterate what they're saying in, like, a way that he understands it, and then they can either, like, confirm or die, like, yes, that's it, that's it. And I think a lot of times with climate change documentaries, when there's, like, interviews with scientists, I always get lost in sort of the jargon and sort of the terminologies that they use, because I find, I don't know, I just find it inaccessible as someone that doesn't study science. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought that was helpful to have Leonardo there for those moments. Um, yeah, and I was I was nervous going in at first because I did think it was going to be like, oh, um, Leonardo DiCaprio travels around the world and just like points at this, this, and this, and it's like, guys, well, that's bad. Um, and like, I'm, I mean, and there were still a couple moments where I was like, okay, Leo, like, and I'm, and it also made me wonder, like, what does someone have to do to become a United Nations messenger of peace? Is it just like? If you're a well-known public figure, do they just, like, thrust it upon you? Do they send out, like, an e-bite, or, like, how does that work? I think that's the case. Like, you, if you are famous and influential enough, they will just, like, send out an invite to ask you to do something. Is there more than one, or is it just Leonardo? They have different focuses. Yeah, so this oh, okay. is the environmental focus, but yeah. there are, like, you know, children's welfare. I don't know what the actual titles are. Or, like, women's equality, or... Right? Am I getting that right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because, like, I don't know, because there was, like, the, I guess, archival footage of him sort of, like, learning about it, um, like, before, like, a while ago, when he wasn't necessarily sure what he was talking about, Mm -hmm. and sort of just, like, listening to people kind of explain it. And so I was wondering, then, if this is a topic that he himself chose, or if this was a topic that was, like, put on him to learn more about. I got the impression that he, it was something that he cared about. Like, he Mm -hmm. was generally an environmentalist. And this is probably, I should say, something that just, like, spoke to my bias is that he's, I don't know, he's, I think, maybe a little bit older than me. But we're roughly the same age, and I think we probably have similar backgrounds in terms of, like, 
feeling like an environmentalist from a very young age. And because he had such privilege as he became famous, you know, as a teenager and in his 20s, I think like there was a convergence of, I want to lend my voice to something and this is something I'm already interested in, but it very, it became specifically climate change, which is like a huge complicated topic. Um, Right. So that was how I, uh, which has really evolved in the way that society understands it in the last 15 years, I would say, when he started talking about it versus now. Okay, so we have already established <laughs> the fact that this is a good documentary. Okay, so you, you can go see it if you are concerned about environmental issues. But let's move on to the next thing, just because like, I want to talk about how I hate the last 20 minutes of this film, okay? Your tone is just like, I don't know where it comes from sometimes. It's amazing. Okay, yeah. Because it's almost like a hagiography. In both content and form, Leo goes to see all these big shots and world leaders. I'm probably too harsh, but do you think people would actually be convinced just because Obama's appearance? I don't know. I was grappling with this too because I feel like people that deny climate change aren't going to watch this movie no matter what. Like, I don't think, like, (laughs) I don't think it necessarily makes a difference, like, who it is that's talking about it. I feel like if you're, like, in like a climate change scenario you've already you're already cemented in that ideology and i don't think this documentary is going to necessarily change your mind um but also i felt like the last 20 minutes were very strange and i thought the film built built up this like really weird crescendo like at the end with like all of these like images of like just the world seemingly imploding with all these like nature shots and then it just like (laughs) ends on leonardo just like we gotta do it and then it just credits and i'm just like oh that to me that felt kind of unearned or that moment, at least, where it was like, oh, God, we got to end this movie. Let's, like, tie it all up. Let's do it. And then it was just, like, a bunch of archival National Geographic footage. Um, like, I mean, it was it was produced by right. National Geographic. I don't know. There was a moment where I was just like, I'm pretty sure I've seen all of this footage somewhere before. And I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. I've seen it in, like, magazines and, like, other videos that they've had. But, yeah, there was just a moment where I was just like, oh, man, we really took a turn here. And now I don't. I don't know what I'm supposed to be like. I don't know. I felt like it wanted to have this lasting impact on me at the end and be like, okay, now go out and do better. But like, for me, I was just like, oh, it's over. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah. So the first part of what you were speaking towards, like, is this movie going to convince a climate change denier or is a climate change denier going to even see this movie? Um, <clears throat> I think it's important to note that this film is really being marketed to college campuses. In fact, why we're getting it because it's trying to i think educate a generation of people who haven't made up their mind about this at all and um you know i think when you're young when you're 18 you maybe haven't even chosen your your causes yet and like much like leonardo dicaprio as a young man 18 like they want college students to have that similar awakening and make this their passion before somebody else influences maybe their ideas about Uh, the environment and climate change. Um, So I do think that's why we see Obama and then the Pope, and we're seeing the kind of heft behind, um, behind the message. Like, I think that it is supposed to dazzle impressionable young people who are being brought into this um, cause. Um, And then secondly, yeah, the ending, I mean, it, (laughs) so if you're watching the ending and you're maybe from our position, then, seeing this kind of build up to like even the pope cares about climate change like wow. it feels a little silly and contrived 
And certainly, um, uh, the abrupt ending, yeah, it didn't feel like it was it was a flawless ending, but I'm not sure how they could have ended it because if you go too soft on on the on climate change, like an inconvenient truth, which came out I think about ten years ago now, yeah. um, it had a pretty soft ending, and I don't think like climate change deserves a soft ending. <laughs> like it's going to take massive um, regulations um, and social movements and um, f- for for this change to come about. And a lot of sacrifice by the developed world for this change to come about. And so I think it has to be fairly abrupt. I think like there's probably a better way to do it than this film did. But I don't, I think if it had tried to sort of slowly back out of the issue in some gentle way that made you feel better about like turning the lights off at the end of the night, like that, that's not going to help anything. Well, I think one of the most convincing bits in the film was from the Harvard professor Mankiw, just because, first of all, I'm a right-wing person. Sick, I support free market. Uh, and second of all, I did read his textbook when I, when I took Economics 101 when I was in college. So I think one of the uh, more effective strategies here is just to invite uh, you know, Republicans who believe in climate change to talk about Things in general. I don't know. I think I think that 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 bit really uh, gives you a point of view from well the other side of the camp. I think that you're right. I mean, I think it was a smart move to talk about the economics of climate change and the need for a carbon tax and have a conservative person speak to that. Um, I think that he really downplayed the kind of regulation and tax that's needed on huge corporations and industries and the regulation that would have to go hand in hand with that. He made it sound very much like we're just going to tax individuals, lower income tax, and that somehow individuals are going to start making smarter choices that are going to vastly develop our solar and wind power industries. Like, I don't buy that. I think like he needed to emphasize more the industry level kind of changes that have to happen. But Um, you know, the industries are going to be the entities who are going to be taxed most. So that's why he thinks that by taxing um, carbon, you are going to make or motivate those industries to change their policy in general. I I think that that's fair, and I haven't read his book, but in the documentary, that argument is very much framed as an individual tax that's going to nudge people to make better choices in their everyday lives. And I think that that is, it's a little shady of him to kind of play that card of individual responsibility when we know that we're at the point where we have to make massive industrial changes to the way that our economy and society functions. Um, and also... <laughs> like the Republicans aren't going to start talking about climate change because then they would have to propose a plan to combat it. And they don't want to propose plans right now until they take back the executive office. So the whole thing is a little bit moot when you think about the way that the Republican Party is functioning right now. But like you have to, you know, convince half of, you know, Americans population. So like in a, in a way, you have to find a way to speak to them. So, <laughs> Okay. Uh, so how do you like Bye. it? <laughs> <Bye>. <laughs> well, for, the last, question, for the, the last question, let's talk about Leo as the narrator of this film. How do you like him? Trustworthy? Annoying? Inquisitive? Snobbish? Um, um, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I appreciate 
the mission and the goal. Um, Leonardo specifically, I don't know. There were moments where I was just like, like, like when he's like watching the narwhals and he's like standing next to the sort of like the guy and he's like, oh, like the narwhals make this sound or whatever. And he's like, oh my God, it it sounds like they're purring. And I was like, (laughs) don't. I'm like, unnecessary. Like, edit. Like, (laughs) he's like, whoa. I'm like, Leonardo experiences nature for the first time. The documentary. (laughs) Um, I, I generally thought he was, he did just fine. Um, I would say that th- the odd thing that's happening in the movie that's kind of fun, it's kind of like a little, like, sweetens the deal for the viewer, is that you get to see behind-the-scenes footage of The Revenant being made because he was making those movies at the oh, same yeah. time. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, or on the other hand, um, they end up having to move the film because there was no snow where they were shooting, and, Mm -hmm. like, they're just sort of, they casually kind of mention, like, isn't that crazy? Like, that's how bad climate change is. (laughs) (laughs) We couldn't film where we wanted to. So we have to move to Argentina. Oh, my God. That is going to cost a lot of money. Yeah, they talk about, like, how much money it costs, but, like, they they never say then that probably wildly increased the carbon footprint of that particular film by, like, shipping your entire production to a different continent and different hemisphere. Like, I found that a little appalling, that they didn't have the self-awareness to just mention Maybe, that. like, we didn't know that. Maybe in the ending credits of The Revenant, there's going to be some statement about, like, we paid carbon tax. I watched The Revenant, and I can say that there's no statement. At the end of it. <laughs> I didn't remember. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, guys, we will wrap up there again. Before the Flood plays at Film Scene Tuesday, October 11th at 6 p.m. as part of Bijou Film Forum. For more information on Bijou Film Forum, check out bijou.uiowa.edu. Before we move on to our third film, let's check on the weather. It's currently fair and 70 degrees in Iowa City tonight, a 70% chance of thunderstorms and breezy with a low of 50 degrees. Tomorrow, Friday, slight chance of thunderstorms, then sunny with a high of 60 degrees. You're listening to Bijou Banter on KRUI Iowa City. Bijou Banter is a show dedicated to discussing films playing locally at Film Scene. When D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation screened at the White House in 1915, President Woodrow Wilson reportedly remarked, quote, it is like writing history with lightning, and my only regret is that it is all so terribly true. Griffith's film, made 50 years after the end of the American Civil War, presented a warped portrait of Reconstruction in the South, glorifying the Ku Klux Klan and denigrating blacks as not only dominating Southern white men, but also sexually forcing themselves on Southern white women. The film was based on The Klansman, a novel written by the president's good friend, Thomas Dixon, who later confessed that, quote, the real purpose of the film was to revolutionize northern audiences and transform every man into a southern partisan for life. Nate Parker, the writer, director, and star of 2016's The Birth of a Nation, knows this history, and by reclaiming the title of a film that the Library of Congress has claimed as culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant, he recognizes that our identity as a nation is forged not only in the history books, of the victors, but also on the screens of the oppressors, screens that all too often reflect back at us the visions of powerful straight white men who mistakenly or perhaps willfully believe that theirs is a universal and timeless perspective. Premiering at Sundance only one week after the Academy released an all-white list of acting nominees for the 2016 Oscars, Parker's film presents the story of Nat Turner's 1831 revolution 
Revolutionary and Violent Slave Rebellion. The insurrection resulted in the deaths of more than 50 white people, took two days to suppress, and aroused fear, anger, and hysteria among Southern whites, who retaliated by killing more than 200 black people, most of whom had nothing to do with the rebellion. After its premiere, the enthusiastic reception of Parker's film was cut short when it was revealed that Parker was accused and tried for sexual assault against a white woman as a student at Penn State in 1999. Parker was acquitted, but John Celestin, Parker's roommate at the time and who later co-wrote The Birth of a Nation with him, was convicted, though he was eventually acquitted as well. Their unnamed accuser stated that Parker and Celestin raped her while she was intoxicated and unconscious, and also asserted that the two publicly harassed her after she pressed charges. We've only recently learned that this woman committed suicide in 2012, while Nate Parker, who never denied having sex with his accuser that night, openly admitted he was never taught the meaning of consent and repeatedly refuses to apologize for his actions, went on to make a film that seeks to give voice to those who might otherwise be written out of history. Thus, whether you approach this film from its place in cinematic history, our national history, or the personal history of Nate Parker, the audience is confronted with the reality of the inherent and persistent violence of a system that is white, patriarchal, and capitalist, and that is not, as many would argue, broken, but instead works exactly as it was designed. Power begets power, and the rest of us are left to fight for dignity amongst ourselves. Spencer Chung-Min, when did you first hear about this film, and what was your initial reaction to the idea of it, and did your feelings of anticipation or even hesitation evolve in the past few months? Um, so I heard about this film first. I like to follow uh, like festival coverage a lot. It's like one of my favorite things. So when this film <laughs> premiered at Sundance in January and it got like rave reviews, it won both like the dramatic jury prize and I think the audience award too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was like super excited, especially coming off of the back of the hashtag Oscars. So white movement, which was like appalling that no person of color was on that stage at all, except for like the person that was hired to write jokes about it. Like, <laughs> yeah. And so I, for me, it felt like a breath of fresh air. And I was especially excited too of sort of this reappropriating of the birth of a nation text. And I was really excited to sort of see that on screen and sort to sort of have an audience see that an American audience, especially. And, um, but then over the course of these past few months, I have been feeling very, very conflicted about seeing this film. And I think my only consolation for this was that like, as a BG member, I do get to see it for free. So I'm not necessarily Giving, putting money in anyone's pockets by seeing this film, but I know that that's not the case for a lot of people. And so I, I don't know. And I like read, I read the phone records of the case because it's always been in like public domain and just like mulling over that and sort of listening to people like Roxane Gay and um, other um, black women in media sort of discussing this and debating this and really just sort of having to sort of listen and kind of decide whether or not this is sort of a film that I want to necessarily support. And I think, I think ultimately, I think there's a lot of ways to learn about Nat Turner's story that exists outside of this movie that are also readily available for public consumption. Um, I mean, the, like... Yeah, so I don't, I don't necessarily think that if you're looking for a historical, uh, like, like a tried and true historical like perspective on this particular event in U.S. history, this film is like the only means to do that. And so I guess that's where I'm at at this point. That I would like 
I would prefer to read it from somewhere else. Well, I also heard it from Festival Report, and uh, I have much higher expectation for the <laughs> film because, like, when you are going to title your film as the birth of a nation, you are you are going to be prepared to be challenged by film scholars in a sense that. Because we know that,、uh, in some sense, the birth of nation is the film that really、um, decides the、uh, trajectory of cl- classical Hollywood narration, right? So we have this continuity editing and all all the other stuff. So I don't think narratively the f-、uh, film has、uh, risen up to my expectation, but also because、um, you have to admit that. The film has a very, very melodramatic structure, and it's not a bad thing. But for example, I would say if we want to talk about African Americans' experiences, I would say *Tangerine*, for example, is a much better and fresher film. So, like, I think it's not about like if you reclaim the title, you can just like tell the story from a different side. It's also about after you reclaim the title, how you're going to think of a different strategy to、uh, represent or to present your difference, or to say that you can tell the story differently, not using the usual Hollywood melodramatic cross-cutting structure. Yeah, which was pioneered by Griffith, which is <laughs> which is ironic.、Um, so let's go back,、uh, Spencer. You mentioned Roxanne Gay, and in August,、uh, in August, Gay, who is currently in Iowa City, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times stating that she would not see the film. She wrote, "Quote: I cannot separate the art and the artist, just as I cannot separate my blackness and my continuing desire for more representation of the black experience." In film, from my womanhood, my feminism, my own history of sexual violence, my humanity. Uh, and this raises an interesting question about the decision to see or not see this or any film, as you've already、um, started to think about, Spencer.、Uh, Gay's choice is personal, but it has has me thinking about how I choose to spend my box office dollars, which movies I choose to screen for my students, and which movies we even choose to discuss on the show. So I'm wondering, Chongmin and Spencer, have you ever felt compelled to abstain from watching a movie or even more actively boycott it? Um. I don't think I've ever actively boycotted a movie necessarily. I have refrained from spending money on films,、um, specifically just like from my own personal like experience,、um, sort of unrelated to this movie. But there have been movies that have come out in recent history. I'd say like、um, The Danish Girl, for instance, or、um, like even like. Um, the Dallas Buyers Club, which came out a few years ago, these sort of m- movies where and sort of as they were coming out, I was also sort of like、um, sort of going through、uh, like a pre-op,、uh, like transitionary, like gender transition, and so for me to see these films and to sort of see the appropriation of like trans feminine bodies, like p- like putting. Cis men in the place of them for me felt wrong, and it wasn't concurrent with sort of the experience that I was experiencing. And so for me to go out to actively like seek out these films and to like pay money just felt like a disservice not only to sort of like my own self and sort of the identity that I was sort of mulling through and navigating, but also like just like in a bigger picture sense, like 
to actively create representation that was accurate to not only my own experience, but to like the experiences of so many other like trans people and to sort of like see that and just like expect and need like better representation for that. So those are the kinds of movies, I guess that I would, I, and, but then it's conflicting because I don't necessarily abstain from watching those either because I want to see how those operate and like how those function, even as painful as it can be to like view these tried and true stereotypes like over and over again and know that there are people that are going to see these movies that are going to watch it and come away from that movie taking those very like stale notions as like fact and then apply them to ideologies that they have in like their day to day life. Like that to me is like horrifying. But I also think to, I don't know, just for my own personal, like, I guess, experience, I have to sort of be on, I have to be mindful of these movies and I have to see them and I have to be able to form my own constructive opinions around them so that I can actually, like, I guess, like, do my part to sort of dismantle the way that they're structured and to hopefully tell people about how they're not structured right, I guess. <laughs> like, Do you find, I mean, like, have you ever questioned, I know you're, fairly new to teaching but would you ever think twice about screening a film for students or do you think that's a reason to screen a film for students if you're going to engage with a particular type of criticism of it yeah i think that's always well my goal because like in order to deconstruct racism or in order to talk about racism you have to show your students the most racist film possible in order to show how the discourse is being conveyed or given to them uh, wholesalely, right? So, uh, but I think, I would say as a film scholar, one of um, my most important goals is to tell a different story, like to tell a different history. I think that is why we always have to um, deviate from the well-trodden path, for example, said by Bowell and Thompson, by our textbook uh, writers, right? So I think uh, we do have to do that. But here, um, it's conflicting just because my brain tells me that uh, I shouldn't criticize or ever talk about a film before I watch it. I think that's just because like, you treat it as a text. And you also know that at the back of your head, you know, the film is not a product of uh, the director or the scriptwriter. It's, again, it's an industrial collective effort. So when you are refusing to see the film, you are saying that, oh, basically the film uh, is all the work product of the director or the scriptwriter, right? Like you are not giving credit to all these other people working in the film. So I think... Um, in order for us to say that, like, of course, you can give your ethical stance uh, for people to understand, but we also have to see this as a bigger phenomenon, not just like, you know, one person's product or um, artistic effort or whatever. And I think that that's fair. Um, and I, it's not just you know, a product of Nate Parker in this case, but it is certainly something that is raising his profile and he very much wants it to raise his profile as an auteur director and he will <laughs> he will um, reap the financial benefits from having made it. Um, but yeah, I do think that showing students films and showing them how to understand them 
with a critical eye is important. I will say that I had an experience where I almost was going to teach Chinatown and then decided not to because we were just teaching it in a sort of neo-noir setting. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like I didn't have time to think of it in terms of um, Polanski mm-hmm. and and I also I think like gay have a, I I'm not willing to com- to separate out an art from their artist um, and their profile from a film and so unless I really have time to sort of unpack all of it then I want to be careful. One question: Would you would you would you show a film from Woody Allen to your students? Um, I haven't yet because I honestly don't know how I would unpack that and I've thought about <laughs> that a lot. But yeah, okay. I would want to be prepared. I wouldn't want to do it flippantly. I re- yeah. I really wouldn't. Um, so let's talk about the other people who have um, participated in the making of this film, uh, including Gabriel Union, who plays a woman who is raped in Parker's The Birth of a Nation. She, too, has spoken out since the revelation of Parker's sexual assault. In her own op-ed in September, she wrote, Since Nate Parker's story was revealed to me, I have found myself in a state of stomach-turning confusion. confusion. I took this role because I related to the experience. I also wanted to give a voice to my character, who remained silent through the, throughout the film. In her silence, she represents countless black women who have been and continue to be violated, women without a voice, without power, women in general, but black women in particular. I knew I could walk out of our movie and speak to the audience about what it feels like to be a survivor. So there are two um, sexual assaults on enslaved black women in Parker's The Birth of a Nation. Union's character is silent. She has no dialogue before, after, or at all throughout the film. And Aja Naomi King's character, Cherry, is Turner's wife, and she is also beaten and raped. Narratively, these two events seem to prompt Turner's ultimate rebellion. Changmin Spencer, did you feel that rape was being used as a plot device in this film, or did you feel that the issue of rape was engaged thematically, given the brutal reality of enslaved black women? Um, So I knew that there were rape scenes before I went in to see the movie, and that's partly because I... um, on Twitter, um, I follow a lot of sort of um, like media specialists and um, activists, um, especially some activists like within the Black Lives Matter movement, but also just like people who know more about these issues than I do. Um, and so um, I read a lot of people saying that um, the rape of Aja Naomi King's character um, doesn't happen in the text that this movie was based off of and that to me felt alarming in the sense of we have a director who is accused of rape directing a rape scene and to me that felt a little bit not even a little bit it just felt wrong to me and then there's also this moment in the film that's sort of not the rape but there's the scene where Nate Parker and um, what's his name, Army Hammer, mm-hmm. are like sitting in their carriage and they're watching Aja Naomi King's character being sold. And there's it's like this weird moment where uh, Nate Parker's character like looks at her and it almost in this kind of the same way, like she becomes like this object of desire for him, and that's the sole reason why he wants his master to put money on her and to buy her. And it for me that felt kind of wrong too and I don't I just like I and the whole Gabrielle Union she's literally been the most outspoken cast member um, for this movie Um, the one advocating and the one even the one talking most about the rape in like very blunt terms and I was shocked to see how little her character appears on screen I thought that because I mean her voice is like so present 
um, in sort of the promotional tour for this, I guess I had made the blind assumption that her character was going to be a very significant point in this movie. And in a way it is, but in a way it also isn't. It's very, it's like used for an emotional heft. And then we never, we never get anything else other than her expression. And it's, and like the whole, her whole sexual assault is like framed around her husband's um, sort of anger about it. And not, it's not necessarily explored through her. And I was wanting more of that, I guess. I don't know. It felt, a bit of it felt tacked on, it seemed. And I wasn't necessarily sure what I was supposed to glean from it other than like what we're all supposed to glean when we see a horrible like rape scene like it's awful but besides that fact that very obvious fact like what else was oh, it doing okay i'm going to going to this not so ironic and serious tone like uh i still think people should watch this film we should debate about it but uh there's something that is so wrong with the plot because it is so streamlined like you have like as if like um the black rebellion was just based on this uh emotional upsurge right mm-hmm. like it is not about their oppression or less it is not about their living condition it is all because this kind of very warped gender dynamic in the film so like again i agree with you like the i don't think uh, using rape as a plot device is appropriate, not because of its um, ethical connotation, but because it is flattening the whole discourse around this history. It is telling you less. It is as if like, oh, we are just imagining something that has happened in the past. Also, we'll, we'll say that, oh, you know, they they have this kind of rebellion because one of the guys guys's wives was raped. So like that is going to uh, tell you so little about the story behind all these people and um, their situation. And for example, uh, Virginia in the nineteenth century. All those details are lost. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's some effort to try and explain that there's been an economic downturn. And so the first people to feel the effects of that are the slaves. Obviously, they're going to be fed less and worked harder. Um, But yeah, I think you're right that it flattens the entire discourse when you make narratively the cause and effect so directly connected to the rape of of Turner's wife, which, as as I've also heard, Spencer, doesn't actually occur in the text um, that the movie is based on. Uh, I want to move right along to talk about um, Nate Parker and Army Hammer. Um, So it was difficult for me to judge Nate Parker's performance in this film without taking into account his off-screen actions and behaviors, and I don't think I should, so I won't. But I would like to talk about the way that Nate Parker's Nat Turner is paired with Army Hammer's Samuel Turner, Nat's white slave uh, master, who is portrayed as vaguely benevolent, but figuratively and literally very much asleep to the fundamental inhumanity of slavery. There are many examples in film and literature of a white character acting as an agent for the audience's introduction to a black world. This film, however, works somewhat in reverse. We see a white world through the eyes of a black character. 
Uh, and that was effective, in my opinion. Do you uh, agree? What did you think of the depiction of these characters? Were there portrayals or performances that stood out to you in particular? Um, I would agree. I thought um, that was effective as well. And I think I was drawn more to Army Hammer's mother's character. Um, in the beginning, it seemed like she was going to have a very pivotal role in sort of the formation of um, Nat Turner's, I guess, childhood and then it so abruptly shifts and that's no longer the case anymore but she still remains the sort of motherly presence almost borderline white saviory premise but towards the latter half of the film all we get from her is are literally just like facial expressions where she looks like she's on the verge of tears yeah. and her eyes are just like red and I don't know how I feel about that aging makeup either but that's like an entirely different scenario but with army hammer's character i don't know i was going off and on because i guess we're supposed to infer that like army hammer's character is was the blonde boy that was playing with yes him in like the field so and they've stuff. grown up together they've grown up together and so for me i don't know it was really hard to sort of because like i guess no matter how friendly or nice this movie makes him out to be in the beginning the matter of the fact is that he's still a slave master and he's still participating in this inhumane act and practice um, and so we sort of get a glimmer of the sort of bl- his own blindness to the fact that he's like actively participating in sort of I mean slavery, and he kind of the film sort of turns him into a villain towards the latter half of his screen presence, which to me felt a little. I would have had liked to have seen a little bit more of his like um, I don't even know what to call it. Uh, I don't know. I just thought it framed him so nicely in the beginning and then it framed him so evil in the end that I was kind of wishing for a marriage of both throughout the entire run rather than, oh, we feel like somewhat okay, but also uncomfortable because we know he's a slave master to, oh my God, he's like an awful slave master. Like he's awful. Like, I mean, all slave masters are awful, but he's like being, he's acting out on these really awful impulses in which he like brutally beats his slaves and all these horrible things. And there's no... We never see, he's like rolled up into one character. He's like the good cop and the bad cop. And it's like, I didn't know how to negotiate that. I think the only interesting relationship is definitely between Nat and Samuel in the film. But I think it is either not fictional, fictionalized enough mm-hmm. or... Uh, or it's just not not realistic enough. Like Adler, I want essentially like what Spencer's saying. Like yeah. it, it, it like, I do think I agree. I, th- I thought it was the most successful relationship, but and yet it still was pretty flawed, given that they f- they needed to have this transformation of his like character. Y- you either want more complexity, or you you want the relationship to be even blander. Mm-hmm. So I think that's I mean that's the direction. Also because. Can we talk about the visual aesthetics of this film? Because there's something so wrong with that. Do you want to talk about anything in particular? So basically, <laughs> like in this film, you are going to see many, many scenes that seem to be photoshopped. And it gives you this kind of surrealistic feeling, like very well composed, well lit. And uh, for example, the butterfly scene and the... Uh, the sex in the moonlight scene, like all this, like like they are almost like magical. It, it gives you like a very 
atmospheric feeling. But in a sense, I just don't know if those scenes fit into the narrative. Well, let's talk about that butterfly scene because I wanted to talk about it in terms of the soundtrack at that moment. Yeah. Generally, I felt like the soundtrack was really overpowering and melodramatic in yes. this film. Um, but separate from that, I was once told that a filmmaker has to earn the right to deploy an affecting song in the third act. And Parker uses Nina Simone's Strange Fruit in the aftermath of the Turner Rebellion, which we're also calling the butterfly scene for because there's a butterfly in the scene. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, and I don't know why there's a butterfly. Well, so did he... For, I just want to ask, did he earn the song? No. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, wait, was it Nina Simone's version or was it Billie Holiday's? I think it's it was, Nina Simone's. Was it Nina Simone? Yeah. yeah. I thought I, so. I don't know. It's such like an iconic song that has, like... I mean, it's with just so many racial connotations. And I don't know the history of that song, too. Like, when... Uh, even, like, when Billie Holiday sing it to like audiences full of white people that was like the one moment in her set where everyone just sort of died down but in this movie it seemed i don't know it felt too the beauty of that song is that the metaphor of strange fruit as black body is like so powerful but when you pair it with the actual just too literal literal representation of black bodies like hanging from the poplar trees it's just like made to look surreal made to look surreal and yeah yeah, beautiful aestheticized and Mm -hmm. it's just i don't think that's what that song was working towards i don't think i don't know it's like the song it's so grim also in the way that it's like sung and and it's melody and when it's paired with something so like a shot that is constructed to look beautiful but have horrible things depicted in it but uh, it's still a glossy shot. It, I don't know. It felt wrong. <laughs> I think, like, I mean, first of all, the song is just too good for the scene. And also because I think a lot of uh, visual pre- representations in the film are just, I mean, they look like your computer desktop background. Even like the sweeping shots of the cotton field. Oh, yeah. Like the little Instagram filter put on top of them. It just felt. I'm like, why are we making this look pretty? And this are, isn't pretty. And you are not Terrence Malik, okay? <laughs> well, we catch at that point where we took a pretty harsh turn in our criticism, but uh, I, think, I think you're not wrong. I want to ask one quick question. So, this film intervenes in the traditional American narrative of our national history, and we're pretty quick to laud. Um, white figures as national heroes who have violent backgrounds. We don't do the same for uh, black Americans, typically. We laud people like Martin Luther King Jr. or Rosa Parks. Um, Is Nat Turner an American hero? And I don't mean of black history. I mean, is he an American hero full stop? And should we laud him as such? Yes, but not in a way depicted by this film. I agree. I feel. I also feel like it's a little bit conditional because you also have to take into account the aftermath of what he did and well, resulted in like many more deaths of black people than it did the white people. And I don't know. I think at least it got sort of like a fear and a conversation in movement about in this time period. But I don't. I don't know. I don't think it's even my place to decide whether or not he's a hero for what he did to sort of free African Americans. I don't think, I don't, I just don't feel like it's my place to decide that. I think that's fair. 
And uh, if he were to become an American hero, I think that he's going to have a lot of depictions made of him because I feel like that's what we do. We make (laughs) both good movies and very bad movies about our heroes. So again, The Birth of a Nation opens at Film Scene tomorrow and will continue to play throughout the weekend and all next week and most likely for several weeks to come. For a complete list of showtimes, check out icfilmscene.org. If you're interested in seeing film that challenges, inspires, educates, and entertains in downtown Iowa City, please check out Film Scene and Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. To find this and past episodes of Bijou Banter, please check out Bijou's website, bijou.uiowa.edu. All of our episodes are also available on iTunes. You've been listening to Bijou Banter. Spencer, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Chang Ming, it's a pleasure as always. Likewise. I'm Leah, and I look forward to more banter next week.